On this episode of the podcast, I'm pleasant to be sitting down with Eric Matheson Dreyfus, um, who is one of the smartest and most down to earth people I know uh, in this whole kind of crazy world of data. Um, if you don't know, Eric and I run my ML together. In truth, it was kind of his brainchild and I hijacked it. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to that later on though. I haven't been kind of in the world of data science long before it was called data science. Eric's seen quite a lot. So we'll chat through his career, wins, learns, all things. MacML um, and a bit of a sneak peek into something big we're planning. So yeah, really excited about this one. As always, thanks to, to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring um, how AI yeah, built this. Cathcart, an independent tech recruitment company headquartered in Edinburgh. Obviously lucky enough to work for them. And yeah, they've really encouraged me to to do this, which is amazing. So yeah, without uh, without further ado, please welcome uh, Eric Matheson Dreyfus. Speaking to Eric today, the co-founder, we'll get into that a little bit later, the actual founder of uh, MyCamel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. So I suppose like the last couple we've done, we'll start at education. Most people will know, but you're from Denmark. Yes, yes I am. Yes. Uh, now living in London. Married to a French woman? I am, yes. Superb. And working <laughs> on a Manchester-based machine learning conference with a Scottish person. So you did maths at uni, right? Uh, yes, I did uh, maths as an undergrad and then uh, mathematical logic, it was called, um, as a PhD at Queen Mary. Yeah, so you did that, obviously did in Denmark and in early 2000s, the PhD, like you said, um, with computer science as Yeah, well. it was in the computer science department, but okay. uh, it was with mathematical logic. I didn't do any programming. I didn't do any programming oh, really? until I actually left uni. Really. Oh, no way. Yeah. Uh, not even some like MATLAB type stuff. I think I did some some little bits here and there, um, but very little, yeah. Okay. London by choice, on purpose? Oh, I was off at a PhD and I thought, okay, yeah, um, why not? Uh, so I went to London, wasn't planning on staying, just doing three years PhD and then moving on to a postdoc or something. Uh, but yeah, after finishing the PhD, I sort of didn't feel like doing any more academia. I was in London, had a couple of job offers from random tech, well, not random, I think one of them was quite big, um, <laughs> companies. Uh, I said, oh, I'll do this, never want to do banking, got an offer from a bank, and then uh, saw the offer and joined the bank. So that was kind of my. Uh, As I was going to say, 16, 15, 16 years later, we're still. In London, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, so you mentioned that you got into finance. So was that not the plan then? It was just you had a few offers, you weighed them up. Finance made sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I was. It was two thousand six, seven, seven. I guess uh, it was the height of investment banking before the crash. Um, yeah, they were hiring everyone with any mathematical pedigree, especially PhDs. I was constantly helped by recruiters. Someone managed to talk me into yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Someone talked me into an interview, and I said, "Okay, yeah, I'll do it." Uh, I went. Uh, it's a company called Bear Stearns. Actually, I interviewed with them and another company called Goldman, and um, and they made me an offer, and I thought, "Yeah, I'll, I'll go and do that." Um, but yeah, I was very anti-bank before that. I think everyone says that until they see the fashion. I think also it really impressed me what they were actually working on. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't relate to PhD. Yeah, I had no idea what they were doing. I didn't know anything about what you did in banking. So I went there and all the interviews were, uh, I think, bare at the time interview 
you have to do 12 or 13 interviews before you were so different people. Uh, so you're there for two whole days, Goldman would be the same, um, very technical, very deep interviews and I was like, wow, pretty cool. Just the interview process impressed me enough that I wanted to join that. So when you joined it, so I don't know if I've said this on the podcast yet, I'm the least technical person in the world, so <laughs> when you started finance you did a lot of quantitative development. Yeah. Um, yeah. I avoided anything to do with quants at uni, so when we had to choose what research to do in our dissertation, anything qualitative made it into my my dissertation because I'm doing no research like with numbers. Um, but yeah, I, I put this in, don't know if you agree with this, but you did uh, all the quant stuff, risk, pricing. Is it fair to call like that the original data scientist? To some extent, yeah. I, I mean, there's lots of other fields that have been doing data science for a long time. Would you um, be doing things like that though? So like what we now call a data scientist and you've hired for them, we'll get onto that. You've been running the conference with us and the data science we know now, you didn't have that when you were in the bank, right? That, that's what the job you were doing. Uh, as in, no, no, yeah, the, as in there wasn't a data scientist yeah. at the bank, no. Everyone was a quant, if you do. Yeah. If you joined them now, do you think you'd become a data scientist? There are data science departments now, yeah. yeah. Separate from the quants. Yeah, okay. Um, who deal with slightly different things. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, it's become a thing now. Yeah. I think the banks were like, oh, we need that as well. Um, but in many ways, we did machine learning just mm. in a quant team on a trading desk. It doesn't really, um, it's not that different. A lot of techniques would be the same. Honestly. Yeah, and that's one of those things where trading and finance and investment is one of the really obvious areas for data science, right? Like there's so many things you can either automate or learn from, there's so much data. And yeah. It goes back so far. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes sense. And you did that for a while, right? Uh, 2007 to what, 15, 16? Yeah, yeah 15 or 16, I think. Yeah. Uh, I sort of decided, slowly got more and more bored, um, more and more lazy. So <laughs> I started doing consultancy, uh, sort of realized it's, I didn't really enjoy. It, it was very, it was a lot of fun for, for maybe three, four years, and then it became very the same, same, same. Um, especially after the big, the crash, yeah. everyone got heavily regulated. Uh, what you could yeah. do uh, was also restricted. It wasn't that much fun. I think everyone working in the sort of trading side would say it wasn't as much fun anymore. Yeah. And from a sort of technical perspective, it wasn't. So yeah, it went to doing consultancy, which allowed me to work a lot less. I started getting bored. Um, yeah, decided to do company. Yeah, so was this 2015 with Apex Financial Technology, yeah? Yes. We've, ne we've never spoken about this, so was that your first foray into like your own business? That was the first kind of, yeah, that was the first real startup. Uh, founded, uh, what was the plan? Pitched, even invested, um, to do risk management for SMEs. Okay. Um, so a risk management system for SMEs. Okay. Uh, that was kind of the, the, the idea was there's these big, big heavy systems um, are very expensive and people don't really understand them. Mm -hmm. All of the SMEs need risk management. So risk management is this perspective would be currency risk. So yeah. you are uh, selling things in a foreign currency or buying things in a foreign currency, uh, materials or yeah. whatever. And so you're exposed to that risk and you need to, to hedge it, you need to manage it. Um, if you don't, then you go bust um, at some point. So, but a lot of companies don't really want to do that. They outsource it, they hand it over to consultants. Uh, 
they could do a lot of it themselves if they had a system for it. Yeah. Um, it's a, so that was our idea, lightweight, easy system that we could sell to SMEs, that they wouldn't have to you know, spend a lot of time learning, they wouldn't have to pay hundreds of K or millions of K, uh, millions a year yeah. for the system. Um, that sounds like you can still do that now. I, I think the need is still there. I think yeah. there's a huge need for an easy uh, to use, I, I call it wealth front for SME risk management, but wealth front is kind of automating uh, financial devices. Yeah. This is automating uh, risk management devices for, the, for financial risk as currency or commodity risks. Yeah. Um, it's all heavily regulated, of course. There's things you can't do unless you scale up and can do the regulations. Yeah, okay. uh, but there's there's things on the on the on the on the just pure system side assistance you could do. I think there's still an idea there. Nice. Yeah. Never know. When did you meet? We're going to go on to Colin Bradley, so we need to give him a shout out. <laughs> yeah. uh, the man, the myth, the legend. When did you meet him? Uh, the same. We so we founded that company. Oh, did you find these guys together? Colin and. Uh, Again, there's two other people, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of where we met. We met, with them before, yeah. we met before that, working yeah. in a bank, uh, okay. a Japanese bank at the time. Okay, nice. Probably um, just moved back from Hong Kong. And that was, oh, nice. I don't think he's not told me that. And the most unassuming software developer I've ever met. Well, the most, the the least likely to be a software developer when you meet him in Tulsa. Yeah. He does not seem like a software developer. No offense to software developers. Or to call maybe a little bit of offense to call it. So yeah, obviously Apex, you decide not to go with it? Uh, it still exists. Oh, does it, it still employs people. Oh, really? Um, I think... Uh, Do you still own it? No, I left it, uh, I guess, a year and a bit in after it was sort of formally founded. We've been working on it before that. Yeah. Before we found it. Uh, it was just, it was a case of... The lesson learned, I would say, would be when you found a company, a founding team, make sure you're aligned on where you want to yeah, take this okay. company and what you want to do. Yeah, you want to start. Um, and what you think the vision is. Yeah. That's kind of where we realized, slowly realized over time, we never really had a, uh, the five-week team really had an honest conversation about it, but realized that we were moving in different directions. We had different ideas. We wanted different things for this company. Yeah. Um, and at that point, uh, the, the, the other third founder in the company um, sort of, Colin and I and then hey, we sat down and kind of talked over a few meetings, you know, a tough meeting and stuff. Yeah. Kind of like a breakup. <laughs> so, um, Colin and I was just not in it anymore. We were thinking about starting our next company. Yeah. And we decided to um, to leave. Uh, we were brought up by some investors. Some investors came in at the same time. That's kind of what it also was crunch time. These yeah. investors were ready to put in money. Are you in or not? <laughs> yeah, okay, I know what you so mean. We had to kind of say, okay, are we, if once you take someone else's money, that's you, that is like, you, this is it, right? There's at least 18 months, you know, until yeah. you burn out the money of, of you need to commit fully. Yeah. And we were not there. We'll, um, come, we'll come back to investment. So, so that's a recurring theme. So, yeah, so we left uh, and, and started a new company. So you went straight into, so, to Octavia AI, yeah. uh, a recruitment CRM, which yeah. is, that kind of fortuitous twist of fate that, that <laughs> when yeah. the men we met. Yeah. Um, so basically, the idea of that was recruitment CRM aren't very good. Yes. Colin had a friend in recruitment, is this right? Yes. Yeah, and then decided that he could build it because he's a software developer. And then you came in with some kind of very clever AI, NLP type things within the CRM. Yeah, so the story was Colin had built this in Hong Kong. Perfect. Perfect. 
who was running a recruitment company in Hong Kong. Yeah. And he came back and we were working together and at some point this guy loved the system. Like he's really like it's a great system to do something with. Yeah. And it's been just been using for a few years, Colin kind of, kind of been supporting it, maintaining it. Yeah. Um Colin had had one back yeah, he had a, uh, so I had previously done this to Colin in another. So Colin basically applied for an accelerator. Yeah. Uh, this is the Manchester he, one, right? Yeah, the Manchester one. And he said, Oh, would you be up for it? Well, actually, he didn't ask me that. He just applied. And when they sort of accepted us and called us in for it, he said, uh, So I can't put your name on this thing, or I need to put in a co founder. Yeah. They want a two person team minimum. Are you up for it? I said, Yeah. So I joined the company. We hadn't found That's when we found it. That's when you found it. Okay. So I, get a I, so, so, so three months earlier, I've done that. To him with an accelerator in Tel Aviv, <laughs> where I said, So I've kind of applied for this thing, and we're making it, you know, we now have to put in an application, they'll come back with the changes to Tel Aviv, and then we actually went quite fast to text our accelerator. I think we went to the last 10 or 15 strides. So we made it just before we would have entered, yeah. Um, but like, it was a half baked idea, so. Uh, I think they at that point realized these guys are making it up as we speak. Um, so anyway, so, 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 so he kind of did the opposite to me, he just signed us up for something and then... Yeah, you signed them up for Tel Aviv and then you yeah, spent yeah. a significant portion of time in Manchester, so um, the sun and the rain. Uh, but yeah, from an idea point of view, I mean, I work in recruitment, so I can totally understand why you'd want to make a recruitment here because they're all shit. Yes. Um, there's pretty much, you might know more than I do, but there's maybe two or three main players. And they're very much global as well. It's really the only one now, isn't it? I can't talk about that one. We have it. It's great. <laughs> um, no, but I, I mean, I've played around with the CRM and it's very similar to the couple of the web ones that we used and it was just really modern and like, I think the other things that you were doing in the background is pretty cool. It's just a hard, it's a hard place to get into. Yeah. It's... There's one or two that have a monopoly. The big companies don't want to risk going to a new CRM. And the small companies probably don't pay enough. Does that surmise it quite well? Yes, uh, yes. There's some enormous players. They have it's a very low price point. Recruiters, for some reason, are very cheap. And for some of, reason. <laughs> and one of, uh, as we realise, there is a price point, and you can't move much beyond uh, around that. Like they will argue forever over five pounds a month on the license fee right, per seat. That is kind of what you get into with the negotiation. I think the problem you have as well is because it was a two-man team or a small team. Yeah, yeah. The recruitment guys that you're speaking to will probably be quite keen to get the best deal, whereas like the people we work with now um, are so big that they kind of almost just say no. Whereas you can't really say no because you want the custom. Yeah. It's, it's, a really, it's an awkward point. Since we moved to this new CRM, um, they have various partners that plug in, and we've asked for a discount for some of those plugins, and they would just fly out and walk away from the business. Like, they just say, absolutely not. Like, we don't discount the price because we don't have to. Yeah. And it's, it's actually been a really strong negotiating tactic from them because we've signed up to it quite a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I remember speaking to Colin about that. Like, it is just a tricky market, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's, it's, and there's so much on both sides, there's a huge amount of companies, and I remember when we started, we looked at the stats, and there was 2,700 new recruitment companies uh, signed up every year in yeah. company's house, which is enormous now. Yeah. But it was also 1,500 or something closing every year. Oh, there's so many of them don't make any money. So it's a, it's a common theme, and we experience this many times where you know, someone does three, four, five years in a recruitment company and said, why am I not earning all this money myself? Yeah. I set up a company, 
just I just need to do three placements a year and boom. And one year later, they haven't done any placements yeah. uh, because getting actual business is the difficult part. Yeah, um, so. And then they churn. Uh, you know, so we had we would do all this work, sign up customer, and they would churn yeah. uh, because it's such a volatile business. Yeah. Uh, so again, that was sort of um, another part of it that really drained us and. Yeah, with the price points, with the market, there was just no way really of scaling now, jumping into why we closed it. But I remember when we had the discussion of like it not scaling or going any further, you basically said, I think it was you and Colin said, there was two options. Do you go for another round of funding? Yeah. And like you said a few minutes ago, you go 18 months of hard graft to try and make it something. Yeah. Or do you just know when enough is enough? at that point. Um, I think that's a really good lesson for people because how many people keep going when maybe they know they're not 100% in it anymore? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, we, and I would say, and I look at hindsight now, we went on too long. But, so we did it for two and a half years, I did it for two and a half years, I guess. Yeah. About that, two, maybe two, two years, three months or something. Um, full time, after a year and a half, we knew in in your heart, yeah. you knew. Well, just because you've seen the problems, like, and they're going to be difficult to yeah. overcome, right? So, the crypto companies aren't going to pay you more because they're always going to argue on price. They're always going to be huge amounts of churn because it's an unregulated, wacky industry. Yeah, I can say that because I work in recruitment. You're up against enormous players. Yeah, I mean, even when so we're it's the same for us. Like, we're the small tech recruitment company headquartered in Edinburgh similar to what you guys were trying to do and win business with companies that are being supplied by multi-million pound companies. I won't name them, but one of them is the main sponsor of Manchester City Football Club. Yeah. Like how, how do my bosses in Edinburgh compete with that? The only way we can do it is on service and quality, but getting in the door of the big companies is really hard. So it's exactly the kind of same issues that you would have had. Um, we'll dial it back slightly. So I have in my notes that the 8th of November 2016 was the day your life changed forever. That's actually a lie. We met slightly before that through a mutual acquaintance in Manchester, but we had our first man come out on the 8th of November, so over three years ago, which is crazy. Um, so, very briefly, if anyone doesn't know what it is, why did uh, why did you and Colin decide to start it? Man came out? Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know, it was just a wacky idea I had. I thought, um, I didn't know anyone doing AI and machine learning data yeah. in Manchester. Yeah. I had a feeling there were some companies. Mm -hmm. No one was like shouting about no, it. No, exactly. It's like, whereas in London you would, so we were at that point, we were going back and forth a bit between London and, and, yeah. uh, and Manchester. And in London there was loads of companies all over the place, you know, da da da, AI this, machine learning this. Uh, loads of uh, meetups, huge ones, hundreds of people attending. And I was like, what was it? Like, I thought there must be some in Manchester. I want to meet them because I feel very alone. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought it would, I didn't know what it was going to be. I, I, at first, I thought it was going to be like a study group. Yeah. Because there would be just 15, people talking about 15, it. Yeah, there would be 15 people showing up. I just need a place with some pizza and we could chat and we could like have community. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my initial plan. Um, I have some friends in machine learning, basically. Uh, and also, I thought if we were to host it, we could maybe build a bit of a name because we were trying to sell ourselves as an AI CRM. Yeah. At least we had our name out there linked yeah. to some sort of AI machine learning. That makes sense. Uh, so, yeah. So, so I don't know if anyone, I'm going to completely ruin my credibility as the 
co-organizer of MagDML. So I basically tagged along to a, a meeting with Eric. Uh, there was a couple of dropouts at the last minute for speakers, I think. Uh, or one maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I spoke to the guys at Peak, um, who I was working with. Um, we got a speaker along, we stuck our logo on the screen, met you and Colin for the first time, well, met you again, but met Colin for the first time. Uh, around 80 people turned up to Spaceport X. Uh, and we had a pretty good night of what, I suppose what it is now, but slightly, if this is even possible, slightly rougher around the edges. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, a lot of people ask me, and I don't know if you agree with this, but a lot of people ask me, why is MicroMass so successful? Why is it so big? Why, how have you done it? My answer's always just like, Eric set it up at the right time. Like there was nobody else doing tech meetups from machine learning. Now there's, you could probably go to one a week if you wanted to. Yeah. Not just in Manchester, but in the north of England. Yeah. You could probably go to one a week and they'd probably be quite good quality. Yeah. So I think just because we were the first one, it's almost been kind of synonymous with if you go to a machine learning meetup in Manchester, it's probably MagML. Yeah. Um, I, would I think so. And I also think because we, I always say this to people when I'm organising it, but it's a little bit of organised chaos, mostly because I mean, you work at London in a very senior role as head of data science at a startup, and I work in Edinburgh doing tech recruitment across the UK. So it's not a day job to organise this event. So we throw some things together last minute, but we also just kind of enjoy doing it, yeah. I think, which is quite obvious. Like we like going to the event, we like meeting people, we like chatting to people. So I don't know, there's a bit of like authenticity behind it, which maybe some other events don't have, especially run by recruiters. And that's just true, I think. Yeah, I think I, I mean, personally, I find it, I take the joy from just seeing people there enjoying it. Yeah. And chatting, I love the breaks when people just, you can see, I can barely get them to sit down again for the next talk because yeah. everyone's just sort of buzzing, having drinks, having food, chatting about stuff debating the last talk yeah. and that's kind of what we want like I, just, I love to just look at that yeah um, and see people interacting that way and there's a bit of a community oh, I think the biggest success we've had from Minecraft is the fact that between anywhere between 10 and 20 people after the event on a Thursday night no matter the weather we'll go to the pub yeah and continue talking about the talks and we'll talk about football we'll talk about work uh, it doesn't really matter but people will take time out of their day to then so to come to the event and then they will come to the pub after with the three of us and sit for a couple of hours when they don't really have to um, and we've tried to replicate that in some of the other events we've done and it's just not the same thing uh, which is fine but i love that's one of my favorite parts about it is that we know that there'll be something after the event as well because people don't want to just they want to just keep it going a little bit yeah um which i think is amazing um, well people also see it as a way of catching up with peers in the See a lot of people just talking about uh, what are you doing these days? How's that yeah. company? It's like a catch. I guess there's a bit of a community of the data scientists and other companies you don't interact with day to day. Yeah. Uh, so I see that. So I love that. Like, I think that's good as well. Like, yeah, I mean, because I don't work down here every day, and you're the same now. It's nice just to be back in Manchester. Like everyone's super friendly. I mean, you live in London, so everyone's incredibly <laughs> friendly for you. Scotland's alright, uh, but Manchester's just this whole little place of like. People want to help each other. The tech community is great. The machine learning community is amazing. So we'll keep doing that. Uh, we might have some big plans for 2020, depending on what happens. Yes, uh, so, we'll, so we'll see. Uh, but I'll go back to you. So obviously, Octavia has kind of wound or kind of run its course a little bit. Although it's still going, I think. Yes. Yeah, still so, running. Yeah, so Colin will do stuff. 
uh, recurring customers, but then you move into probably the, the first time you move into a startup that isn't yours. Yes. Yeah. So this came around again though by chance, right? So you met them to talk if they want to use Octavia, is that right? Yes, I. It was a sales call that yeah. turned the other way, um, or, or whichever way you say it. So yeah, upside down. I was selling to them, and then they end up selling to me. Fair um, enough. Um, so Streetbees, they do market research, right? So I think the interesting thing you told me was they were a AI market research company that didn't really have any AI capabilities yet. Yeah. And that's how they saw the company going. So they needed somebody to basically do it. Yeah, they were in-housing basically. They were, had, um, at that time, there was consultancy that were doing, yeah, okay. and they had consultants in-house sitting with them doing this science and they wanted to in-house that as part of a large investment round, which is kind of typical. You go through a few seed rounds or early stage, like small series A, and you can kind of outsource it. You can yeah. hire a consultancy to do, although consultancy is very expensive. Um, yes. And then in the next case, it would pay expensive, I think. And then that's, as you scale up now, you, you're going to build a proper team in-house. Yeah, okay. uh, um, now you can focus on that. And that was kind of where they were at when I joined. So they needed a head of, uh, they yeah. to build a team. There was a, they had hired some people when I joined, yeah. uh, but they were very new, sort of two, three months into their career. Yeah. Oh, into the, yeah, into the tenure there. Um, so my remit was to manage that team and expand it um, and start building some in-house tech. Yeah. That's would sort of become a, a yeah their their IP. And you were there for about eighteen months. Eighteen months, yes. And I know from speaking to you that it was a crazy eighteen months, like long hours, it's fast paced, scale up in a very uh, busy space. Yeah, I met some of the team. We actually you got in touch with potentially us helping you guys grow as well. So I know a lot about what they were doing, and it's all very very cool. Um, a good example of what you said earlier, like there's so much hype in London around AI and machine learning, like the, these guys were really riding that wave a little bit. And you, I think you, you said you managed to build some pretty amazing NLP stuff, right? Yes, I think, yeah, I mean, I was also lucky I managed to hire a really good team. Um, yeah. And uh, moved on as well. Some of them do, do great things, some of them still do great things. Um, I really enjoyed the team I built there, and they and they built some really cool stuff in the NLP space, but also in, in other sort of more traditional sort of machine learning techniques, uh, not just sort of new funky. Um, I remember we did a few talks with Mike Miller, and a lot of people really enjoyed the just some of the stuff you guys were trying to do, and like the little problems that they probably have as well, just not in the same area. Like you did a lot of free text customer information yeah but they'll have those problems but maybe just internally but the, how to get that like free text into any sort of machine learning model and you were talking about that in quite a lot of detail i think a lot of people resonated with that quite a lot um what we should mention while you did this crazy 18 months of scale up startup whatever you want to call it you also had a pregnant wife yes uh, that at, must some point, <laughs> at some point during that um Actually, quite early on, I guess, after a few months, uh, uh, my so wife became pregnant. So and, crazy, crazy uh, busy with first kids on the way. Yes. She added it was twins. But did you know that at that point? We knew it was twins very early on, yes. Uh, right, so I'm a twin, so I can say this again. My dad said it was the worst day of his life when he found out <laughs> my mom was having twins. Well, we never had uh, <laughs> a period of time where we didn't, like, we knew there was something, and then we decided to go and have a scan very early on. Okay, so you uh, knew quite like early. six weeks in. Yeah. And the guy, uh, yeah. 
to my full shop four year olds. But I don't think at the time we didn't really we didn't really understand when we were getting ourselves into it. It was just like, ah, oh, cool, that's fun. And, and then slowly over and we fast forward to now. Yeah, yeah. And you've got slept for six months. Over the over the next few months we started realising what we were in for. No, so we um very quick side note, my wife said that having twins first would be better because you don't know anything else. And I just laughed because like I know how hard it was for my folks. <laughs> my director has twins. And uh everything is just doubly as hard. So yes, you don't know anything better, Yeah. but it doesn't make it, doesn't make it ideal. I think it's um, true, yeah, I don't even think double. I, I always say it's like, it's just, yeah, it's non-stop. It's, it's just non-stop, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, it's great. And uh, it's an exciting time for you to be head of data science at a really cool company. Obviously, twins on the way. Um, quite recently, an opportunity came up to move to another scale-up, is that fair? Yes, and I, after the, 15 months or less, I guess. I decided to move on. Yeah. Uh, for, from my perspective, I was kind of burnt out. Uh, yeah. I had just, the twins were what, six months, five months old. Yeah. Uh, that had been uh, the most intense period of my life. Uh, uh, and at the same time, the company was scaling faster. There's more and more customers yeah. working long hours. And I just kind of, I could feel that my, energy levels were just gone. Just so enthusiasm kind of left and I said I should I should do something else. So I, I decided to leave, uh, spend a bit of time faffing about. Uh, I was when you have twins you yeah, 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 uh, yeah. to do I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, this sort of did full time dad for a bit. Uh, and I thought, yeah, it's probably time to uh, do something other than full time dad. Fair enough. Since that um, I think it's an important topic though, so it's not actually something we've touched yet uh, on the podcast with the other, the other guests, but I suppose when people see you at Monkey Well and uh, ever since I met you in 2016, that kind of enthusiasm and genuine uh, like buzz when you're doing your presentations or uh, when you're speaking about the team you were building at Street Beach, you're always so, so enthusiastic. So it is, I think it's important to like highlight that sometimes it can be quite tough. Yeah, like working yeah. on a scale up, who getting millions of pounds for other people's money? Yeah, with plans to uh, exit, or yeah. if people are leaving the company, or you can't get the right people into the company because London hiring is uh, yeah. uh, melting pot of craziness. It can take us toll. Uh, yeah, and, uh, in, a, in a small company, there are no uh, scaling company, not a small company, just that, but uh, a company that's being created. Yeah. There are no processes. You're creating them. When you're managing a team, when you come in as a manager, it's a large corporate, everything is set up. Yeah. You know what to do. Some of them before, right? There's structures, yeah. You follow this. And when you're hiring people, you're managing people in a, in a scale up, where it's constant people, new people coming in all the time, and people leaving as well all the time. It's very fluid. Things are changing all the time. You have to do a lot of it yourself. You have to invent a lot of the rules yourself as you're going along. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an intense, it, it's fun, but it's also... Uh, I have a lot of people speak to who run startups, work in startups, get to the scale-up stage. The reason a lot of people join is just for that, like, that buzz. Yeah. But it needs to be managed, I think, Yeah. closely. And when we spoke to Richard at the for Peak, he was very conscious of the culture, the diversity, and the kind of mental well-being side of it. And that doesn't mean you don't have to get too in depth about that, but just understanding yeah. having some policies in place or some time for people to kind of like take a step back. 
Um, but yeah, so you joined uh, a test in November. Uh, all I have on that is that they're a consumer growth platform, so I'll let you do the, the 30 second elevator pitch. Uh, uh, hopefully you don't mess it up. I'm still very new, so I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll get it wrong. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a survey platform uh, that sort of don't actually do a service itself, there are other providers doing that, but uh, doing analytics uh, on consumer surveys basically. Okay, yeah. Um, and that is the worst pitch ever for that company. That's why they got the big, the big funding round, is that you talking to investors. Uh, no, I looked at it and it's, I can imagine from a data point of view, there's, is, a, is a similar challenges to what you had before? Uh, some, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's general challenges of, of dealing with uh, unstructured data, yeah. um, which is, I think, a lot of... That was of the word I was looking for earlier, unstructured. Which is a common thing in a lot of companies um, where you have large amounts of data and everyone's like, you should be using this data. but it's, has no structure, has no commonality across this data, uh, and therefore actually using it is uh, an enormous amount of work. Just get it to the point where you can try and use some, some of that data yeah. and get some value from it. Um, so yeah, that's what I do now. Nice. I'm sure we'll revisit that uh, when you've been in a couple of months when we talk about some of the projects. Uh, so we're at a test now, so this is like the, it's not the end of your career, it's a ridiculous thing, so <laughs> it could be after that pitch. Uh, what I thought would be good for the last bit of the podcast would be, you've obviously learned a lot from being a massive company or massive companies at banks, not being a data scientist while doing data science. Then you've learned a lot as a founder who has to stay technical, but pitch and sell and get investment. Um, and now scaling and growing teams. So w what do you think makes a good head of data science? And also what do you think is important when, I suppose hiring data scientists, because that's a big part of your job and my job. Yeah, so I'd say, yeah, about hiring, I, I don't know. Um, it's, good, it's good for me. <laughs> it's such a difficult thing these days, um, but it's all about selling uh, nowadays. Data scientists are so in demand and that it's quite different from when I used to work in banking and you would hire, uh, especially in sort of prestigious banks, um, you would get a lot of applicants and they are selling to you. They want to work in your team. They want to yeah. be in the front office doing this and this and this. Yeah. Nowadays, especially as a non-Google, non-Facebook, non-DeepMind, non, uh, non-Asia companies that are sort of super hyped and everyone wants to be with, Work at um, you have to sell hard. Yeah, so much competition, and to the point where sometimes when I interview, it's it's a balancing act between are you actually understanding this person and whether they fit in? Because I'm so much in sell mode, <laughs> I often find myself just selling, 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 selling. Yeah, being this, uh, you know, talking about the vision and yeah. you know, all the big. Uh, arms out going yeah yeah or energetic yeah and then halfway through the interview I'm like I actually have no idea if I want to hire this person because I've, I've I've been selling 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 saying I can see this person is now super excited about the job yeah um, and I'm like okay hang on hold on can you do the job <laughs> yeah uh, but that is the thing uh, that in this crazy place right now where the, they, good data scientists are so wanted, especially in a place like, uh, like London with so much competition, yeah. that to even get them to come in for an interview, the good ones, you're winning already. That's hard, right? And then, you know, getting them to then want to join is, is a huge um, 
a huge accomplishment to get anyone to join. I think so. Really yeah. Good. So it's it's a really difficult. I, I I mean I have certain things I look for, um, and I am also quite strict about. I want those characteristics in a person. Yeah. Uh, Do you are you hiring for characteristics rather than? Technical ability, yeah, for example. Uh, you, yeah, to an extent. When, yeah, when well, I, 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 I couldn't be a data scientist no matter how nice I was as a person. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but there's there's a base level. Yeah, I think you can train the rest. I, oh, I would always prefer a junior who's smart and keen and capable of learning, yeah, and open to learning, than someone with technical ability that I'm not sure will fit into the team. Like it's all about the team and. Uh, and getting them to work together for me, I'd yeah. say, hey, yeah, it just takes one person not functioning well within the team to sort of destroy a good dynamics and a good feeling in the team. Oh, hundred percent. We and see then, it all the time. Yeah. So, um, so I would rather not hire uh, if I can't find the right fit into the team. I think that's important. We've learned that a lot from a couple of people. The other thing that we found when we had a similar problem in hiring, so we only hired graduates and uh, or uh, people with no recruitment experience, sorry, not just graduates. Uh, we did the same thing. We sold, 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 sold all the amazing stuff that happens when you do well at our company. I kind of forgot that there's a real like grind at the start of it. Yeah. So you don't see a lot of the amazing stuff we pitch in an interview yeah. until you've been here for a while yeah. and you've tasted some of that success. So we got to the point where we actually flipped on his head and said, by the way, it's going to be a bit of shit for a bit. Like, you're going to have to get the head down and just knuckle, kind of knuckle down almost. And that's actually worked quite well for us because all the stuff that is amazing is still true, but we set expectations from the start that just, you don't just get handed it. Yeah. Um, and I think in a scale, that's exactly true. That's that's the other side of it, right? One thing is you may not have tested that person or you don't feel you really know about because you're in selling mode. The other thing is you don't want to promise. Yeah, there might be really cool things that's happening in your company, but probably not for for the junior that's just starting now. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, they didn't get the, yeah. The, the investment doesn't mean anything to them. And things change all the time in a scale up as well. Like, yeah. what, I've also had that where I've pitched things and I've had people join, and by the time they join, this is not what we're working on anymore. Yeah, because we changed direction. That, so, that, that, we're kind of going to go into that when some someone gets a big bit of investment. Or we're kind of covered that quite a lot. Like things change super quick. The direction of companies change super quick. So that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. But when you're, this was the last two questions, I suppose, but when you're managing a team of data scientists, do you just concentrate on your work and the data scientists team work and then you wear the hat of head of in a separate part of the business? Like, do you do the kind of business strategy head of piece out with the team and then come back to the team and just focus on the work? Or do you try and keep them in the loop the whole way through? Oh, I, I would always keep them in the loop. I think, as a, as a, generally as a head of, uh, that's kind of your your task. You don't get a lot of, you shouldn't expect, I think, as a head of to do much work in the technical work. Yeah, um, I think people maybe make that mistake. That is a not, few seniors that don't do any data. And it's the classic startup mistake, uh, where in a startup, your managers are often coming from within, or it's their first management job. Um, and they've never they're the best technical person in the team, therefore they become the, the head. Yeah, um, it happens all the time. And problem is, the head should not do anything technical really. That you, or if you do that, if you do really well as a head or as a lead, you might have some spare time to do and you can do the fun stuff. Yeah. yeah, but the fun stuff is your, 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 your primary uh, 
your primary um, objective is to take care of your team and optimize their performance, right? Yeah. And that means... And fight your battles a little bit. Basically, yeah, I'd say, I always think there's three things you need to do. Stakeholder management, so protect your team, yeah. manage the external um, sort of interfaces yeah. that your team has, be there whenever they need it. Uh, someone in, uh, was it the product manager of Google who calls it the shit umbrella? And we took that <laughs> on in, in, my, in a street meet in our team and people would say, oh, Eric, you're a really good shit umbrella today. Basically, that is what the manager should be. Yeah. For your people to work the best, you need to take all the shit. It's yeah. draining, it's hugely draining, but that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and then, what I call player management, because I'm in football. Yeah. The one-to-ones and the team dynamics. Yeah. Again, that is uh, draining, <laughs> because you are essentially a kind of, uh, you sit there and you listen to their problems and you solve them. Yeah. You're there always for them in a sort of that way. Yeah. And then the first thing I would, is uh, like the mission statement, the vision. You need to stick into that. What is? What are we doing as a team? Why are we doing this? This is the big vision. Yeah. Uh, and I think especially for people in, in data science, scientists, uh, people at sort of that level of technical expertise, why are we doing this? Where are we heading? What is the mission? It's yeah. hugely important. I think so. Uh, they they will figure out the day to day little tasks. And the technology will be the same in a lot of companies, but yeah. if you're going to beat Facebook, Google, DeepMind, whoever to these hires that'll be a big part of it. Yes, that is, that is why... You want to get them to play for you, like what you said in football, and then you want to get them to believe in the, the kind of mission. What they call the project in football, right? They believe in the project. Yeah. They believe in the well, project. Well, the whole like, European club, Liverpool, <laughs> <Yeah. actually. laughs> and they were in Manchester, and they're from London, you're an Arsenal fan, right? Yes. So that, project, that project's pretty much fucked. Yeah. Uh, my team's also a really bad spot. But, um, yeah, we mean, look at Klopp, Ferguson. Like, they played for the manager, and then they shielded the players from the media, yeah. which is maybe stakeholders in a business or directors in a business where maybe they're expecting data to be the holy grail of the entire company and the whole Series B funding is if the NLP platform works. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. So your job is obviously to shield them from that, be confident that you'll be able to build it, yeah. but manage both sides as best you can. Take, take, take the pressure and then turn around with a smile on your face and said, don't worry, I got this. This is what you need to do. Yeah. And and this is the mission, this is what we're working on. Don't don't care about all the sort of external noise. I never saw them find a dark room. Yeah. Just for you to sit in. But, but that, that, that is what you should think you need to do. Of course, maybe it's a bit extreme and day-to-day is not like that. And, you know, sometimes like that, but a lot of time you do get time to do some fun stuff. No, of course. And be part of a technical discussion. But... Yes, like an example, I'd say one of the, I think I probably said it to them, but uh, I was street piece when I put the team there, they were very junior, yeah. most people were straight out of their first job. And the best moment is that day when you're sitting in on one of their discussions and you don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like they're talking about some technical detail and I'm like, I don't understand what this is. <laughs> and, and I'm like, this, learning from this is great, right? Yeah. Because in the beginning you are there feeding, but now they're at a level like raising children, they're above you, right? Yeah, and now oh, they just don't have to ask you. They've just went on and cracked on and yeah. figured something out, used something new, built something new, and you don't know about it. Yeah. They're and confident. That's kind of what you should aim for. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be over the top of them every single day, do you? No, and, and again, I think that's just another thought that hit me in that respect, sort of in how you want to manage them, uh, or how you want to manage them. I think, again, maybe it's sounds maybe it's also the way things are nowadays, and yeah. things have changed. But I think that idea of the, which is, 
again, difficult for some technical people, the idea that you are the hero is not like that. Is there's a lot of hero managers still around? Yeah, I'm the one who comes up with idea. Yeah, I'm Steve Jobs in this team, and you're implementing my idea. Yeah. And again, that is doesn't work very well, especially not I, I, from my experience with people in, in this field. I don't think we would respond well to that in general. No one responds well to that, but um, but. You again. You should not expect to be the one taking any credit. Yeah. You should just. You're just providing the setting. Yeah, for people uh, to succeed. Yeah. No, that's really good, and I think that's probably a good place to stop the data science element to this. Um, so thank you for your time. Uh, I couldn't let you go. So we talked in the last podcast. Uh, Adam is. Uh, it's a CrossFit. So I asked them what he tells people first, that he's a data scientist or a crossfitter, because they're so culty. Uh, I don't know if I can say that, but I have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you aren't into crossfit as far as I'm aware. No, but, not uh, You do, we have a, a kind of common interest in, I suppose mixed martial arts, because you've done some Thai boxing, right? So you've done some training, whereas I've just said I was going to. Yeah. I yeah. still haven't. Although it is on my list to do on my honeymoon in Thailand. Um, we have a hotel that is next to AKA Thailand. Oh nice. Uh, okay. So yeah, so we can just walk in uh, and they do beginners classes. So I'm determined to do it. So <laughs> watch this space. But no, so we talk about MMA quite a lot when we're not doing Mike ML. Uh, and since it's just been announced that Conor McGregor is fighting again, I had to ask you about it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you since this will be out before that? Yeah. What's your prediction? Uh, cowboy. No. Yeah, oh, it's our first disagreement in three and a half years. Uh, why? How? I, I don't know where McGregor is in his level. Like, I, no one knows. Like, it's been on no, so long. No one knows. Uh, and the like, last few times you've seen him, he hasn't done that well. Um, he did okay against Khabib, considering everyone else has been I know, thrown I know, around. I know, I know. Like, relatively. Yeah, Rosie's he, he was great. Yeah, yeah. My of course, he, he still got more fight. I think everyone does, though. Apart from maybe Ferguson. My big problem with it is that Cerrone gets hit and seems to quite like getting hit to like wake up his like his creative flow. I, I, I don't think you're allowed. I don't think you can let McGregor hit you. Is my biggest issue yeah, with it. That's true. True. If true. it goes past two and a half rounds, Cerrone has the submissions, the cardio, the experience. But I just think if McGregor is dialed in, I think it might just be the wrong matchup. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think. I think. I actually like Cowboy, so I'm okay with it. If you're right, I think it'll be Cowboy. Uh, I just have this feeling. Also, I don't really want to see Conor Khabib again. So whatever stops that happening, I'm not too worried about it. Oh yeah, but me neither. I just don't see anything different. Unfortunately, we will come from that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, well, let's wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. Um, please keep an eye out for Mike Mel in 2020 because we have some cool shit planned. I'm sure it will be the last time we get Eric on this as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. I hope it makes some sense. <laughs> I definitely did. Thank you. So yeah, yeah what, what a great chat that was. I uh, had a lot of fun sitting down with Eric. Most of our conversations are last minute, rushed, uh, Man Came Out related, it's over text. Um, so having a chance to sit down with him uh, and chat through his career and his uh, kind of learnings was, was really fun. As I said at the start, he's, he's a proper down-to-earth dude, uh, totally unassuming, uh, whilst at the same time probably being one of the smartest people I know. Um, you might have noticed in the podcast we had a bit of a chat about Conor McGregor, Donald Cerrone, so this was obviously pre 
UFC 246. I don't like to brag, but I absolutely nailed that prediction and uh, Eric got it horribly wrong. So yeah, um, thanks for listening, hope you enjoy. Um, thanks again to Cathcart Associates for letting me do this. Um, and please do comment or share uh, if you like the podcast um, or let me know if you want to have anyone on. And I hope you tune in next time. Thank you.